Welcome, this is Coppercast, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon. Our guest today is Nicholas Sandstrom, CEO of the Hilbert Group, a Stockholm-based investment firm that specializes in digital assets and blockchain technology. They're founded in 2018 and are publicly traded on the Nasdaq First North growth market, and Hilbert is a trusted authority on digital asset investment. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you. So the first thing I always want to know with people is their crypto origin story and, and how you got into it, when you first heard about it, what made you interested in it. So let's go back to the beginning for you. I, I think it was around 2015. I heard about it. You saw headlines about something called Bitcoin, but I wasn't really paying much attention beyond this uh, until 2017. And that's when you really had lots of headlines beyond Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple was early. And um, the other co-founder of, of Hibler Group, Magnus Holm, he actually proposed, okay, why don't you buy three Bitcoins for me? Uh, so I did, uh, $1,000 each, I think. Um, and then I started looking more closely at, okay, so, so the crypto ecosystem, what can you do with it? And at that time, it was absolutely fascinating to see that you could hook up to an API, so any exchange, Poloniex at the time was the biggest, slash API, and you could actually start fooling around with code, executing trades in literally 15 minutes. And that was, wow, this is, this is really cool. It's really technology, technologically driven uh, compared to traditional assets where you have a lot of, you know, it's very cumbersome to get up. And from that point on, I was hooked and um, just started following this very closely. So what were you doing at the time then? Because in 2017, a lot of headlines, as you say, not all of them good headlines. So, yeah. I mean, it, I think it's generally considered a leap of faith to go into crypto in 2017. So what were you doing at the time that made you think, actually, this looks like a good opportunity? I, I was in, uh, I mean, my whole career uh, has been in, in let's say, uh, investment banking and hedge funds. So I was working at Finisterre Capital, um, a rather large emerging markets hedge fund based in Mayfair. And it was similar. So if you look at emerging markets, it's high volatility, um, high growth, and lots of inefficiencies. And this was, to, you know, to the extreme in crypto. Uh, but I really like this uh, feeling of the new frontier it's fresh and unencumbered by lots of compliance so it could really develop quickly and i i sure uh, big risks but i was convinced uh, early 2017 that this is going to be the future and it will eventually reshape traditional finance as well and is that because of the the underlying technology was, was your interest in the space primarily technologically driven or was it more the the market structure and the, the financial opportunities that they presented i would say the latter so more but it goes hand in hand and i'm also in general interested in technology but i think out of those two they just share opportunity and uh, that you actually can apply algos in these wild markets um, that was the most fascinating i think so tell us about setting up hilbert then how did you meet your co-founder uh, we did our PhDs together at Chalmers University in Gothenburg, uh, theoretical physics, and we sat next to each other. Uh, and that's how it started. And it was a long time ago. I think we've known each other for more than 25 years now. Uh, but then 
once I finished the PhD, I already knew, okay, I like financial markets. It was a good time to get in the quant revolution. So all the big investment banks, hedge funds were looking for quants, having a hard science background. So I was, you know, looking uh, and spending a lot of time on Wilmot Forum, which was the biggest forum back in the day. And then I applied and got my first job um, in for ABN AMRO in Amsterdam. And then shortly thereafter, I moved to London. And uh, yeah, and um, just shortly about Magnus. So he took a different path. He uh, was actually developing game theory or game theoretical ways of getting edges in various markets. And he also became a very, a very skilled poker player, trading more or <laughs> playing poker algorithmically online uh, for a long period of time. And he's also a Swedish champion in, in poker, 2006, I think. And then he applied those theories first to traditional markets and then crypto, basically. So you didn't have to really twist his arm too much to convince him to, to go into this with you? Uh, no, no. And it was complement. So, so he is very, he's very much into the nitty gritty of algos, whereas I have a lot of experience about the setup, how do you run a hedge fund and so on. So it was uh, a good fit um, and it worked well for both of us. And it's more exciting than to be in yeah, traditional investment, I think. And so tell us a bit more about like what Hilbert is, because I know in the um, in the piece we did earlier, you talked a little bit about like neutral strategies. Is that you know the core product at, at Hilbert, or has it developed since then? Uh, yes. So so Hilbert basically is um, a listed crypto investment company, but the asset management part—that's where most of us come from. That is the most important part. That's where we spend most of our time, and we see it as what we're building here is something that's broadly appealing for institutions so and that means you have different types of products so market neutral or market neutral like is one of them but basically we have we have three different categories so high risk high return mid risk mid return low risk low return and different investors want different things and different investors want different things at different points in the cycle but I think it's fair to say that institutions they usually have an emphasis on capital preservation so they would naturally be inclined to invest in let's say market neutral like strategies and when it comes down to like you know describing those you know low risk low return versus medium risk medium return in the crypto space I mean how, how do you qualify low risk low return in crypto is it just a BTC long or what uh, no, it's more. It's more. It, it has more to do with the drawdown size, right? So, and you can control drawdowns in, in various ways. And um, it's the simplest way is just having a cash allocation. But if you have a, a passive cash allocation, you have a portfolio worth, let's say, a hundred dollars. You allocate eighty percent to cash and twenty to Bitcoin, say. But uh, that's that's a passive way which most investors would not be willing to pay for because why I'm not paying you to hold cash, but then you can go beyond that. You could be long short, or you could do something with the cash component, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's lots of variations. But I think if you were to choose one metric that defines, I think for most people what risk is, the level of risk is, I would say it's the drawdown. And have you found that the you know, the institutions that invest in, in Hilbert, have their 
attitudes towards risk changed over the last sort of four years or five years that you guys have been going? Um, yes. Um, and it's ever evolving. And they also fall prey to being sort of sucked up in the general euphoria when you have a bull market uh, and we see those tendencies. But I think more so now that institutions are looking seriously because in 2017 there were a few involved. Some were on the, uh, let's say, service provider side like Fidelity very early in. But uh, most banks and bigger fund of funds and so on have been waiting. But in the past two years there's been a sea change and... Uh, they've come to accept the craziness of crypto the, the the nascency and i think a lot of institutions have a great understanding for that and and are willing to take that risk but there's always lessons to be learned like recently with luna right so even for institutions yield farming advertised as a market neutral strategy was all the rage i would say you know last autumn leading up but now a lot of institutions have changed in that respect because they realize that high yield needs to be generated usually means that there are hidden risks somewhere or or explicit risks somewhere uh, and so so but this is natural evolution i think but in general institutions are much more comfortable now with crypto and are looking at it really seriously and that was not the case you know and I guess as asset managers, they you know investors rely on you guys to do the DD on the on the protocols or the layer ones, the tokens that you're investing in. So you, I assume, based on our conversations, have managed to avoid all of the Luna Terra ecosystem fiasco. So what about Hilbert's approach to investing in this space is different from so many others that have been obviously taken to task on this? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a bit surprising that some of really big names, uh, and there are a lot of operators who are prudent out there, but you need to have a holistic approach. So there's various ways you can protect yourself from damage. First of all, don't be over-concentrated. That, that's a simple way. So we actually did have exposure in one of the funds to Luna, but it was 1%, and 1% is less than the daily vol. And then you lose that uh, 1% and move on. And it's probably going to happen more events like this. So that's one way. But beyond that, um, we just work. That's our philosophy. We, we wouldn't like to deposit AUM with other protocols where it's locked up. You have no control. You don't know what happens. Uh, other people choose to that. Other um, operators choose to do that in order to earn a high yield. But that's not what we are doing. So we're looking at, okay, who are the service providers? Uh, what kind of liquidity do we have? Uh, and definitely not running any leverage because leverage in itself assumes that the exchange, if, if you need to rebalance, uh, it assumes, okay, when the market is, is really tanking or moving against you, you need to be able to rebalance, but there's no guarantee. No matter how, if you're on Coinbase, Binance, BitMEX, there's no guarantee so that's the reason why we also avoid leverage so you have to look at each of these pieces service providers your own strategy and so on and just make it as fail safe as possible basically so thinking about leverage in the space and i guess the service providers who are in the space the exchanges everyone else who participates it's changing right and it's changed a lot already and you're starting to see a lot of traditional exchanges coming into the space as well. 
do you think there's a, a period of evolution we're going through whereby in three to five years you have more trusted names in the space, more established names? Cross margining is a thing that works. Then would you know would Hilbert be more interested in in leverage if the ecosystem looked a little bit more grown up then? Um, yes, uh, we would as it becomes more mature because then you could spread across several uh, exchanges and if you look traditional markets like CME or others that it's so robust right but even then you know you should try not to be concentrated in one venue but it would feel much more safe and and crypto right now is far from that stage but then we will be willing to take leverage yeah it's far from that stage does it does it feel to you like it's moving in that direction though or yes it is yeah. it is but um it will still take some time and that's also the opportunity i think we see five to ten years of high high you know volatility which is good if you're a trader but also lots of experimentation and so on so that's also the source of a fantastic opportunity so it's gonna mature uh, and a lot of things have happened in the past two years alone on the infrastructure side the number of custodians the number of of uh, brokers of high quality the number of products that have been popping up so it's 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 getting there um and yeah it's just a matter of time so establishing yourselves here in, in 2018 in the space the start of the last sort of crypto winter it was generally you know we look back on that as a, a separation of the wheat from the chaff all the ico nonsense getting flushed out and you know the well capitalized serious players you know could see through that quite yeah. easily it looks like we're going into another sort of recession come crypto winter do you think we'll have the same sort of outcome where there's you know a consolidation of real players or an emergence of real players that will lead to this further evolution or maturation of the space uh, i think so and i think that mike norgratz is right um, if there is a crypto winter i'm not it, it could happen it could be somewhat likely i'm not sure yet but if that happens he estimated uh, the number of crypto funds, for example, going out of business, maybe order of magnitude 60%. Uh, and I think that would be the case. Uh, but you will also have a reintroduction of unserious players because it's still evolving, but it's getting stronger and stronger, I think, um, the whole ecosystem. And a lot of institutions that we talk to are relatively undeterred of what's happening right now. It's been a really extreme move. Um, we're talking about many tokens still being down, let's say, 70 to 90% since the peak, um, not that long ago. Uh, but they realized that there will be a recovery. And uh, every, every such big event will make the whole ecosystem stronger, I think. And how much of what happens in like the crypto ecosystem is either isolated or independent from you know the wider macroeconomic factors that affect traditional markets like obviously there's some correlation but you know, what are the sort of like the unique variables that factor into the way you view crypto markets um, I think you know just going back to the correlation between it has increased right the correlation um, long-term correlation is still quite low but it has been increasing because more and more parties are actually engaged in, in in traditional and crypto markets so if you cross trade these correlations are going to increase then of course also the the macroeconomic climate impacted crypto so in the beginning of the year uh, crypto markets were going down as equity market did 
but then you had this idiosyncratic event, which is Luna, which was sort of isolated to crypto and 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 exacerbated the fall. Uh, but I think um, crypto will come back, and we see that from time to time. There are periods of time where it's literally uncorrelated to, and that's where it normalizes. And I think we will get back to that. There will be large periods where it's uncorrelated to to traditional markets. And I also think that there is a central bank crisis looming, and out of that, crypto will become even stronger because the the faith in uh, central banks and the general system, the high inflation is eroding. Uh, and I don't, it, there's been argument, for example, that I see Bitcoin as digital gold, that, okay, it's not protecting against inflation, but yes, it is over longer ter- uh, periods of time. And even gold, which is supposed to perform really well in this period, has not performed that well, if you look like from 2020 to now, whereas Bitcoin is up much, much more than gold. And I think this will continue. So over long periods of time, crypto will perform better. I also think that the altcoin space, that's where all the innovation is going on. Lots of services. And for example, DeFi, uh, what happened now in this big sell-off is that DeFi is actually working really well. Um, Luna wasn't purely decentralized. It was quite centralized, actually. The the, the players that have um, problems right now are centralized players. DeFi protocols like Uniswap, SushiSwap, uh, Compound, Ava, and so on, performing very well, uh, perfectly during these difficult markets. And that's also a lesson. And, and lots of those features can be brought back into traditional finance, I think, doing things in a decentralized way in traditional finance. So I um, I just think this strengthens crypto. And uh, yeah. So thinking about DeFi then, I, I it always comes up in conversation that there's a sort of ceiling for institutions to participate in DeFi because it's so like incredibly unregulated. Yeah. So if we just think about regulations, whether it's you know here in the UK where we're recording or Europe or the US, APAC, do you see like a, a specific jurisdiction or a framework or or something that gives you hope that DeFi will be, I guess, permitted or I guess for institutions to really participate in DeFi or will there just be this bifurcation where you get, you know, consumer retail DeFi that's truly unregulated and then you get like a smaller permission pool that's for institutions to play in? Yeah, I think, I hope so. But, and it has a lot to do with regulations because in order to be truly decentralized and that's where the strength of the system lies, uh, you cannot have the KYC AML requirements. Uh, So there is a dilemma, and I think the right way, if you ask me, is that you have to give up some of that. A lot of the uh, regulations that we apply today and regulators try to shoehorn crypto into that was written or remained to 100 years ago. So, but but you you, you can't have both, right? So if it's purely decentralized, you cannot have someone who censors your transactions. And, and when it's truly decent, uh, decentralized, uh, it's, it's a strength of the system. And I hope that that's the route that um, will be taken so that even institutions can. But I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but what I think they should do is that they have to rethink um, 
the, the regulations and the policies around this and have something that's not based on legacy, but that's functional um, in terms of, yeah, for today's technologies, basically. Do you see any anyone that's doing it well right now in terms of like on the regulation front or the legislative front? Um, no, not really. <laughs> it's so politicized as well. And we shall see what happens now in the wake of Luna, for example. I mean, there's been more spotlight on stable coins, which is a natural point for regulators since it's fiat tied with crypto and you start there. So we'll see. Uh, but right now, I don't think there's anyone doing it well, uh, to be honest. US has been very dominant. Uh, on, on it, It's good in one way because they actually give some more clarity and other countries tend to follow. But it's bad in the sense that they are also trying to shoehorn <laughs> an existing legacy framework um, onto crypto, which I think is the wrong way. So we shall see. I mean, I'm, I'm positive, I'm an optimist, but I think, you know, a non-optimal solution, which is somewhat likely, is that they do just that. So you shoehorn everything in and crypto will be just like traditional assets. But that would not... Um, it could be much better than that, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it would be workable. Uh, but it will also take the edge of a lot of the decentralized, uh, you know, services uh, that are really cool and good. And I think many would benefit from. And I guess it's it's a funny. It's there's sort of like a, some irony to that. You know, crypto is borderless. It's always meant to be borderless. And now the thing that's holding us back from you know a wider adoption, at least on an institutional scale, is that. You know, we're trying to sh we're trying to cram it into a border, so yeah. that at least at least we can like operate in that space, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's almost like we need all the regulators to just work together. I mean, they can't individually figure it out, let alone work together to figure it out. But I mean, that seems like it would be the ideal solution. Yes. Yeah. And it would be nice if a strong country, for example, the U.S., uh, took the lead and actually made a sensible, more liberal, because that would then accelerate the others to follow in the same way. And we will see if the, if the central bank crisis becomes deep enough and who knows where it will lead, uh, that may in the longer run be a good thing for crypto and that people are really forced to re rethink the traditional system. But we will see where it ends up. And in terms of central bank crisis, uh, I mean, CBDCs have been on the agenda to talk about for five years probably now, yeah. or realistically in the last two years. Is that sort of... Um, a red herring and it doesn't really solve a central bank's real issues uh yes i think so it's the same shit more or less yeah. so they will print just as much i mean it has advantages right uh, in the way for instance the central banks could be doing a lot at traditional banks that's one of the arguments so traditional banks might look very different uh, it's a good level of control for for central banks it's powerful in the sense that they they could then yeah, there's lots more they can do. It's a powerful tool for central banks. That's a good thing. But in terms of the money supply and, let's say, flawed discretionary decisions around printing money and so on, that will still prevail in that system. It will just be the same, uh, I think. Is this something that worries, like, worries you the most about what's going on in, in finance right now? Or are there, are there other issues that are maybe greater in scope or, or risk to what... What we're all trying to work on right now um do you mean in relation to crypto or just traditional markets or both if they're different um 
I think, yeah. So the, the looming or ongoing central bank crisis, I think we don't, it's just still early days, but there's a very gloomy macroeconomic backdrop and you also have the war in Ukraine and and uh, and it's really getting tough uh, on consumers right now that this level of high inflation and then interest rates getting up and then very painful for, for many operators. But I think for crypto, I think from the ideal state or what, what it could be, the regulatory risk is the biggest risk uh, that they uh, sort of stifle innovation um, too early. Uh, um, I see that as the number one risk in crypto, basically. I guess there is some hope. I mean, you guys are listed on uh, the NASDAQ First North. So tell me quickly about that process. Like, how was it going through that? Because you were quite early among crypto digital asset companies to be listed on a, on a public exchange. So yes, how did that go? Uh, it, it was, I mean, again, it's linked to the cycle, but there is a community of crypto companies listed on Nasdaq First North in mm -hmm. Stockholm. It's quite a liberal, which I like about, they, they're sort of innovation friendly. And the biggest companies probably CoinShares is listed there. Uh, so there was this community, there was a big interest in investing in these companies. And when we did it, uh, the market was benign. It's, there's a lot, it's a very cumbersome process of getting listed. Um, but it also has um, a lot of advantages. For example, the access to capital. And when times are good, you can really grow beyond growing organically. Um, we saw it on balance and also strengthen the brand name. So on balance, this was a good thing. Uh, and also be part of a, of a larger, let's say, community of crypto companies. Um, and it would differentiate us versus some other managers. Um, that's the assessment and that's still the assessment. And even if, if markets are tougher now, uh, and you always sort of have to look at the stock price as a public company, we still think it was a good move and uh, the times will change uh, once crypto changes as well. So what sort of excites you about what's going on in the industry right now? Um, it, it has, I, I think it has matured. I, I, I kind of like the, uh, the way the institutional, let's say, infrastructure has grown and the counterparties that we are talking with, some of really big traditional players, they are looking into this really seriously. Uh, some of them are already engaged. That's a huge different, uh, difference. I like that. I also like the innovation going on in on the smart contract side. And I think we're already, or we're only in the beginning. So what kind of really consumer-friendly products or uh, very use, very nice use cases, nice products being developed? And that goes back again. I don't want regulations to kill this off. But, but a lot of the decentralized machinery, and um, for example, I can give a specific example. So if you look at lending, for example, you can hand in Bitcoin and you can get stable coins back as a loan. In the future, how fantastic and how quick it would be, you can buy a car. The problem right now is that you can't use stable coins in many venues, uh, but it will come a time when you can. And in crypto, like we are paying our service providers, so it's starting in a small scale. So fund administrator and other service providers we can pay in, in, in stable coins. And once this becomes uh, like, yeah, more broad adoption, 
you can think about all those services that will be very quick and very easy um, and really useful for a lot of, of people. And that's sort of exciting. And there's lots of products I can't even think of right now. Just like when the internet started, you had the first web browsers. And look where we are at now, the range of services that are building other services and so on. Web browsers is a, is a neat analogy because I think, you know, what was the first one? Netscape and then Internet, Mosa- and then Internet Explorer. Those, yeah. But they're dead. They're gone. Yes, so, it, I mean, if you're, if you're drawing a correct analogy, I mean, do you see, you know, Bitcoin and, uh, and Ethereum lasting and going the distance or will they just be the pioneers that are erased? Um, I think it's unlikely. I think Bitcoin will be digital gold. I believe in Ethereum, but... Ethereum is the operating system. So if you look almost operating system of crypto, so almost all other cryptocurrencies until they go on their own main chain uh, lives on Ethereum. And it's going to be like, it's interesting you mentioned the, the web browser because uh, I think Google Chrome was number 23, killed off everything so much better. And it could be a smart contract platform, we don't know, that's so much better than Ethereum. It's somewhat likely that that may happen unless or Ethereum implement those features, that will be killing off a lot of competition and that becomes the, the new operating system. I think there will be a, a market for different cryptocurrencies with different use cases, but I thoroughly believe that 95%-ish of what we see today will probably be worth zero come 10 years' time. Uh, but there will be new ones coming and some of them will be the Amazons or or Facebooks or whatever of, of the crypto yeah, ecosystem. So this makes me kind of wonder based on sort of like the area of study you guys did your, your PhDs in, and this is so far out of my wheelhouse, this might be a totally wrong question, but I mean, people have started to ask whether the impact of quantum computing could actually ruin crypto because yeah. the, the level of encryption we expect in crypto could be broken by quantum computing. Yeah. Is, I, that, is that realistic? Is no, that I think it's, uh, it's not the case at all. And the reason I think... Sure, if you, if you invent um, um, a quantum computer, powerful, in your basement, you don't tell anyone, then you can go out and crack some private keys, uh, probably marketable tank. But at that point, so the, the quantum versions of uh, these encryption algorithms are already, already exist. So what it would mean then is that um, the whole crypto, let's say, ecosystem will be run on quantum computers having this encryption for quantum computing. But if you're the first one, you can sort of, but once you start draining a chain like Bitcoin, people will notice it. So I think it, it's, I don't see that as a threat at all. It, so it's it, just gonna, it's almost a bit of an opportunity then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the system, if that happens, the system will move on and it will be quantum computing. That's the norm with the corresponding encryption algorithms on quantum computing. And then it will be just as difficult. So, um, yeah. Okay, that leads nicely into um, our next set of questions. We sort of asked um, people the same 10 questions. They're meant to be fun, but um, let us know what you think. So, first one, where do you see the crypto industry in one year versus 10 years? In short terms, market cap terms, I think in one year from now, it will be at $4 trillion or more. And in 10 years' time, it will be more than $30 trillion. That's an exciting and also short and succinct actor. I like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, if you could change one thing about our industry, what would you change? I would change the regulatory framework. I would like 
the regulators not to interfere with crypto in the next five years. Um, Does that just mean leaving it completely unregulated? Yes, leaving it completely unregulated and then regulated. I, I, I like regulation. It's there to to uh, for protection. And I don't think that you, you should have 100% unregulated market. But it's so early. Let's see where it can go. Let the innovation be completely free for the next five. I think that would be the best way of actually getting to an amazing point uh, and then start to regulate it. Is there a piece of technology in your own life that you couldn't live without? A workstation um, with um, several screens or a really big screen because I think I, I can really work well with that. I find it hard to work on laptops and so on. But of course, if I had to choose one gadget, it would be a modern mo- mobile phone just for the simple reason that you can do so much fairly decently well on a mobile phone. So what does your weekend look like if you get time off? What do you do? Um, Relax, spend time with family, work out. I like swimming um, and travel and so on. But it's been a lot of work. Um, I enjoy my work, but usually, I mean, I work a little bit every day. But it's more, yeah, sporting, eating in nice restaurants, spending time with the family and so on in the weekends. There's a famous like race from Sweden, like the swim run, like yeah, it's called, Ute, Ute, it's called Ute, Ute, yeah, 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 yeah. Have you done it? I haven't done it, and you know, even though I liked to run when I was younger, I sort of I don't like the running part anymore. <laughs> Let alone combine it with swimming and some islands. Yeah, fair enough. exactly. <laughs> okay, um, is there a film or movie that you could watch over and over again and never get tired of? Um, I would say it's an old movie, but. Um, it's bound by the Wyckowski brothers, or I guess nowadays it's the Wyckowski sisters, the the um, the people behind the Matrix. They did um, uh, an early film, I think it from the end of the nineties, called Bound. I think it's a masterpiece, and I have I've seen it like ten times. So I think it's the first time someone said a film I haven't actually heard of before. So that's going on the list. Look it up. Yeah. Um, do you have any catchphrases or mottos that you live by? It's a cliche, but I think it's really true from the small to the large in life is that success lies on the far side of failure. So uh, you really need to expose yourself to fail. That's the only way to grow, basically, Um, whether it's small things or the big things. And it's painful mentally. uh, But um, yeah, I think that's uh, what I'm. Yeah, if I were to mention one, that would be it, basically. Uh, I don't know if you're a fan of crypto Twitter or not, but um, who should we all follow on Twitter? Uh, Twitter, like crypto Twitter, I, I really like Calio, um, trader, um, very good, I think, um, very interesting uh, discussions going on. And I would also like life as uh, large, like wisdom and so on, how to approach your life. I would recommend the, the Stoic Emperor. Um, short succinct uh, reflections uh, on life cool what's the last thing that surprised you uh i think there's always small surprise but the big one i must say um is the collapse of three arrows capital i sort of admired them uh and it was very surprising that the fund in that position let themselves be exposed to this kind of uh, this level of risk that's a big surprise to me 
Who's the next guest we should have on our show? Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> so, interesting you should suggest that. The final question we ask everyone is, if you somehow got to meet Satoshi, but you only got to ask one question, what do you want to know? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's not so much what I would not know. I would, I would have asked him to take part or all of his BTC holdings and invest it with, in Hilbert products. <laughs> Fair Okay. Nicholas, thanks very much for coming in. It's been great having you. Nice to be here. Thanks. To our listeners, if you haven't already seen Nicholas's show and tell, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on Twitter at CopperHQ or on the website copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which includes links to all the week's top stories, as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a review in whichever streaming platform you're using. If you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. And of course, this show is only made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Tally Spear, support from Rayleigh Mountfort, and Eva Leela. New episodes come out fortnightly. In the meantime, stay safe. <laughs>